We're continuing this Advent series. Pastor Rod started it off for us last week. Um, he started with week one in Advent, and so I'm going to continue on with Advent too. Um, I just want to say first and foremost, thank you to the elders, Pastor Rod and uh, Mark, Sam, just all of them for just how they, they, they have a passion for young men and they, how they groomed us. I remember when I was like 17, 18 years old, they allowed me to go to a, a Mark Driscoll conference with them. And I was, I was bawling, crying because my parents didn't want me to go. And they would always encourage me and they were there for me. And I appreciate that till today. So thank you for that. Um, and to my fam and, and Nari, I appreciate you. It's a pleasure to see you. Uh, just always been supportive. Um, best friend, appreciate you. Thank you. Love you. Um, not bad. Um, but okay, so, so Advent 2, my, my hope today is that you would embrace Jesus in a new way uh, this Christmas and that this Christmas would look different for you and your family. So um, we're, gonna, we're actually going to read all through Matthew chapter 1. Uh, bear with me. There's a lot of names. You know, this was a game time decision. I was going to skip some names, but uh, I think it's important that we probably go through all of them. And so um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read them really fast because it's a lot of names. And then if you guys could pick up with me um, in verse 18 and so on. But we're going to read the whole chapter. So, uh, Grace. All right. So the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. So Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah, and Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Animadab, and Animadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and the father and the and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zodak, and Zodak the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. If you could pick up with me in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When Mary, I'm sorry, when his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. 
and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But he also considered these things. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall come and conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God is with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angels of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And his name is Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for allowing us to come here and worship you and come together as a family and exalt your name. God, this is the hour where the word comes, and I pray that you would speak to your people, that you would remind us of the truths of the gospel, that you would speak to me as well as I, as I hear this message, that it would be ministering to me as I share. Thank you for all that would be here. I pray, God, that no one would leave without you, that they would know the great love of their Lord and their Savior. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So three points I have for you guys this morning. An unexpected family. Uh, an unexpected family, incarnated hero, and redeeming Christmas. All right. So why did we just go through that long genealogy? All right. This is an historical account of Jesus into this world. And at that time, Jews kept an historical uh, and extensive ge genealogies to establish a, per a person's heritage, their le legitimacy, and their rights. This is important because if you're going to believe the truths of the gospel you and to see the beauties of Christmas, you must believe that Jesus really was God and that he was God in the flesh. Now let's look a little deeper into this genealogy. So it starts off with some great names like Abraham, you know, the father of faith, and you have, you have as well as King David who has a royal line. And, and then in, until it trickles down all the way until it gets to Jesus. But this family line looks just a little bit sketchy as you get towards the end. It's not necessarily the family you would have expected for the Messiah God to have come from. You know, all of us here with our family, we never, we didn't choose our family. You know what I'm saying? Like, this was the family that God has given us. You know, and everybody here, you know, has like one, one weird uncle or something like that. But this was the family God gave you. And... At the, out of anyone, if anyone could choose their family, it's going to be God. And God chose this family that we're about to dive into. So first and foremost, it has five women included in this genealogy. I kind of paused for a second as I was stopping by those names um, intentionally. It probably was not noticed because I was reading so quickly anyway. But the inclusion of five women in Jesus' genealogy was unusual because descendants weren't usually traced through, were usually traced through men as the head of the family. And so when we look at some of the names in here, you have names like Tamar, and they included Mary, and you have Rahab, and, and three out of five were Gentiles. 
And this family is filled with sinners, adulterers, prostitutes, as well as heroes. And there's a lot of sin and twistedness as well in this line, but God would be savior of them all. Jesus would rescue all of that. And so you even look at Jeconiah, who, who was added into this, this genealogy, who was a twisted king. He was so evil that his line got cut off. And so it makes us think, like, this is the family that, that God has chosen, really? You could have chosen any family, and this is what you do? Tamar was known to have um, caused Judah to stumble. She was promiscuous, and so she, in a moment of weakness, she allowed him she, uh, she covered herself really nicely and slept with him. You have prostitutes in here as well, and you have just all kind of sin and baggage, and it makes us wonder, why would God do that? Like, why would God choose such a family? But the truth of the matter is that's good news for you and I because God chose this family to show us that he's come for all broken people, all of us. He's come for people like you and people like me. So he didn't come with the upstoot family. He came in the most humblest of ways. God, came, God was up and came down and stepped into our world and identified with us in the most humblest of ways. God became a baby. And he dwelt with man just to show us that God loves us, that God identifies with each and every person here. We looked at, if we... We look at uh, the genealogy again. It says, David, Matthew, the writer of the gospel, points out David's sin here by saying, David, the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And if anybody knows David's life, David was a great man. But David, when, when you hear David, he could have just said, David, you know, father of Solomon, or David, you know, who was, you know, Bathsheba's. Uh, whatever the case may be, but he said David by the wife of Uriah to point out the time when David had a man murdered just to, just to sleep with his wife and then committed adultery against God. Matthew points that out purposely to show us something, to show us why, that God has really come for all of us, that it's not about having it all together. God identifies with each and every one of us. This is not an abstract God, and this Genealogy shows that God is real, that he is true. It's the historical account that this really did happen. Jesus is real, and he really walked this earth. And it's, and it's no reason to, to fabricate it or make it up at all because it's not the most grandest story. If I'm going to make up a story, I'm going to make it look grand. I'm going to say he's came from all the greatest kings and this and that, but there's humility in this story. There's no incentive to fake and this is the way our Lord has come. He's come for us. It's the unexpected family. Tim- Timothy Keller says it this way. Christ came in weakness and in smallness to save not the proud, but those who admit that they are also weak, that they are small and that they need a Savior. We, family, GF, church, we are needy people in need of a Savior. We need this incarnated hero. Incarnated hero. So now the story goes that Joseph and Mary, with no sexual relations, were approaching marriage. Um, Mary was pregnant. But I want you to imagine that for a moment. 
Joseph and Mary together. Um, they're, they're about to get married. No, no sexual relations at all. And the woman that he loves is pregnant. If your partner was pregnant and you guys didn't have no kind of sexual contact and, you, and, and it's before marriage, it's, easy, it's, it's natural to assume that that person has been unfaithful. It's the, it's, the, it's the common thing to think, okay, this person's pregnant, I had no kind of contact with them, this is my partner, what's going on? And so you can imagine what's going into the mind of Joseph, but Mary says it's, it's from God. You know, o- only an encounter with God would make one believe such a thing, to believe that Mary's pregnant and it was not because of any, you know, human, natural kind of way of doing. My question to you guys is, do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? Do you believe the virgin birth? You can't. That's the truth. The truth that matters, in your own strength, you cannot believe that. It's mind-blowing. Only an encounter with God would make one to believe otherwise. You must be born again to grasp that concept because a virgin birth is a miracle beyond miracles. But this was the case for Mary. God stepped into our world and impregnated her by the Holy Spirit. Let's look at verse 19. Verse 19 says that Joseph was a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, but was willing to divorce her quietly. He assumed that Mary had been an an adulterer, that even though we know that's not the case because we read the story, he thought that she has been unfaithful. She, he thought that she has been an, an adulterer to him. But the, the truth is, but the reality is that, that we are actually the true adulterers here. And you may wonder why. But we have been unfaithful to God. Joseph has seen that case with Mary, and he was actually not right. He was wrong. But when it comes to our relationship with God, we're actually guilty. We actually have been unfaithful. Romans 3, 11, verse 18 says, There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. This is found in Romans 3, 11. All have turned away and have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are like open graves and their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery marks their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. They don't even fear the judgment of God. And we have been unfaithful in our actions, in our thought life. It's not in line with how our Lord was, how he walked when he was here. Mary was perceived to be unfaithful, but we were truly unfaithful. In that time, if you were caught to have been unfaithful, you would have gotten stoned for what you've done. That would be the punishment. That would be the consequence for such an unfaithfulness. And with us, we deserve nothing but the punishment of God for our unfaithfulness. Because there's always a, there's, there's, there's a consequence. So with our unfaithfulness, it should be the same thing. We deserve a punishment for what we've done, right? We're all guilty of sin. We deserve eternal separation from God. We deserve wrath. 
That would be the just thing for God to do. We talk about Joseph being a just man. That would have been the just thing for God to do. But Joseph doesn't do that to her. He doesn't. And Jesus doesn't do the same to us either. He shows us mercy. Joseph said, I'm not going to put this woman to shame. I'm going to divorce her quietly. I won't make this a public matter. And Jesus does not do the same with us. He takes away our shame. And so for anyone that's struggling with shame or guilt or anything that they've, they've done wrong or fallen short, maybe you feel like your, your devotional life is not beastly, I'm not walking right, or whatever I've done, God does not shame you. He covers our shame. He redeems us back like with Gomer and, and, and Hosea. With Adam and Eve, you see, when they, when they fell and sinned in the garden, they noticed that they were naked. And God said, who told you you were naked? And God immediately covered them with animal skins, clothed them. And that takes a death to do that. Some blood was shed to make that happen for them to be covered. God could have done something at that moment and said, you're content, but he doesn't do that with us. God does not operate that way with us. He loves us. He always covers us. This is the God that we serve even during this Advent season. The God that came into our world, identifies with us, steps into our world, forgives us, and loves us. He covers everyone in here when we put faith and trust, with him, trust in him, when we repent of our sins and we're open with him, that we're guilty, that he's right and we're wrong, that we've messed up and he's king, he's God. He covers us. Joseph was a just man, but Jesus is the better and ultimate Joseph. Being completely just does not put us to shame. He should have punished us for our rebellion and our wayward hearts, for when we seek gifts but not the giver. But our Lord is unwilling to put us to shame. He covers our wrong. And unlike Joseph, he does not consider divorce with us. Because Joseph was thinking, man, I will protect her, but I have to divorce her quietly. But even our God does not do that with us. Because even though he covers our shame, he only believes in unconditional unions. And so it's a, it's, it's a covenant. He's not going to give up on you. He is your Emmanuel. God is with you. And so he never leaves you or forsakes you. This is why our God is so good. Because you can't, there's nothing to brag about. There's nothing to boast about. It's like, man, we dropped the ball completely and he still wants us and he still loves us. That's good news for us. Unconditional unions. He is committed to us. Christ loves us. He redeems us. That is good news for anyone in here that would trust and believe in that. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how wide the spectrum may be of what you consider, God does not expect you to come up. That's why, he's came, that's why he came down. That's why he came in the way that he did. And that love and that kind of forgiveness makes us beautiful. When you stare and look at the beauty of our Savior and you gaze at, man, like, he did all of it. Like, he did all the work, and then it was finished, and I couldn't have added anything to that work. It makes you new. That's why when some people had encounters with God in the Old Testament, their face would glow when they were with him. And the truth of the matter is the same with us. When we're with him, we look different. Love people, love people. Our hearts are changed, but if you haven't experienced his love, if you haven't experienced the grace that's given to you, unmerited favor, you might not be able to see that love. You might not be able to experience it. 
but those that understand what he's done for them, in regardless of what they could ever have done, it changes them in the most profound sense. It must have been devastating for Joseph. At first, the woman you loved, you dream your future with, has, you believe to have been unfaithful. But only God could have convinced Joseph otherwise. God certainly does this because it, it would take an encounter of an angel for him to believe. And so the same with us. It would take an, an encounter with God. God used an angel for Joseph, and God uses ways to draw us to him as well. This was good news for Joseph. God knows he would need an encounter from this angel to believe in what he's done through Mary. And then he, the angel tells him, name the baby Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. God saves. He saves his people from his sins. See, Jesus came into this earth to rescue us from our sin and to save his people. He came to this earth to live a life you and I could never have lived and to die a death that we couldn't even afford to pay. And in that very act, he cancels all our debt removing all our wrong, all our guilt, all our shame. And because of this, he lived a per- because he lived a perfect life, he placed us righteousness onto our account and makes us pleasing and acceptable f- before God. It was nothing that you and I could have done, but it was all him. He is our incarnated hero. The gospel is beautiful. Be- like, as we relish and think through that, like, okay, he's paid all our sins. He's covered, so the punishment, when we talked about earlier, stoning, he's took that for us. He took that punishment onto himself. If we are in debt, think, that you, think about you being billions of dollars in debt. Well, that, that might not be realistic for you guys, but that's, the, that's our case with God. We were billions of dollars in debt. This is more than just a student loan that you have or a car note or a mortgage you may have. There's a huge debt that we could not have paid. And you know how you feel sometimes when you have debt. The borrower is slave to the lender. You feel, man, the debt is bothering you. You got to pay this car loan. You got to pay the student, you know, the student loans back. It's the debt you could not have paid. He's removed that when he died. But we can't forget about his life either. The beautiful thing about the gospel is, which means just the good news of Jesus Christ, the beautiful thing about this gospel is now he removes your debt, which puts your bank account on zero, but his righteous life makes you leave rich. So now you have a, you, you, you come one moment, you're, you're broke, and now you're, you're leaving out wealthy. That's the beauty of the gospel. So everybody in here, if you have Christ, you leave out rich. You're wealthy because of his perfect life in your place. He did exactly what you and I could never have done. Because Romans 3, 11 through 18 shows us how we've dropped the ball so low. Showed us how we, we are not as pious as we thought we were. We're not as committed to our faith as we thought we could be. We struggle all the time. Sometimes we struggle. We worry. We, we're doubting. We, sometimes we don't believe him to be true. Sometimes we're wondering what's next. What's going to happen? And God is like, I'm here. I'm God. I'm able God makes us wealthy by his righteous life as well. So people in here can hold themselves high with confidence knowing what Christ has done for them. They have a hope beyond hope. 
He is our incarnated hero. He's what we long for, and he makes you new and changes you. That is God in the flesh. The gospel is the good and true story that Jesus has defeated sin and evil through his death and resurrection and is making all things new, even us. Redeeming Christmas. In light of this good news and how it affects how we live, I'm sorry, in light of this good news, how does it affect the way we live? And how does it affect the way that we celebrate Christmas? I know uh, GF loves application, so we'll, we'll, we'll head there. Um, if the gospel is true, it changes how we approach and enjoy Christmas. It seems that our secular culture has owned the Christian holiday. And as believers, we have to regain back this focus to what ultimately belongs to Christ. Our expectation of how we do Christmas can't be the same as the world's Christmas. Now in today's society, there's a great anxiety around this holiday of Christmas. We prepare right after Thanksgiving, literally. Um, hop on, you know, Black Friday shop or whatever the case may be. Our mindset is Christmas. Thanksgiving is over. You see Christmas lights already. That's how it rolls. And we, 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 we want presents. We get presents, and we want to be represented well, um, which is fine. And when I say represented well, you, you want to get good gifts, and you, you, you want to know that they're appreciated and they're, they're, they're nice to others. The great, expect, the great expectation can be around everything but our amazing Savior, if we're honest. Honestly, that would be a boring Christmas. There's a greater Christmas waiting for us as believers. And so I want to talk a little bit about how mainstream Christmas is different from Christian Christmas. If you could roll to the next slide. Um, so mainstream Christmas um, has this focus on pride. You know, you want to be represented well. It's, you know, you're, you're, you're filled with anxiety. All this pressure is going on. But the Christian Christmas is focused on, hum- is, 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 is a humble Christmas, is one of humility, where you're waiting the great expectation of your Savior, where you're longing to sit with family and, and, and share the narrative, the story of the one that has come, this incarnated hero we talk about that has redeemed us and has come and saved the world. Mainstream Christmas is filled with anxiety. People are worried. Uh, last week, Pastor Rod shared a lot of people commit suicide around this time, probably the most, um, around this great holiday of joy. There's a lot of pressure and anxiety. But the Christian Christmas is filled with peace and joy. You have this peace because of what your Savior has done for you, and there's this joy that you're expecting and, and you're excited and you're filled with based beyond your circumstance. The mainstream Christmas is a short-lived high. You know, you're, you're elevating, you're waiting for this day, and then, and then, boom, it plummets after December 26. I remember my sister, uh, my littlest sister, um, I remember last Christmas, she got a, a whole bunch of gifts. A whole bunch of gifts, literally, from everybody. Everybody just wanted, we wanted, you know, we love her, we want to make her happy. And she was really excited when she got that first gift, really excited. But after opening a few, you can see on her face, she was just like, 
overwhelmed. She was zapped out. And then what I noticed after was some of the gifts she put aside and she'd rather have played with us. And she said, Would you, do you want to play with me? And I was just like, man, like from one moment, it's just this instant joy. And it's just like, and then the next moment she's crying because no one will play with her. It's like, what happened to all this, this joy, this happiness? Apart from Christ, it's, it's short-lived. But the, Christmas, the Christian Christmas is this great satisfaction we have. It's this great satisfaction that our, our Savior has come and has fulfilled our every need, our every longing. We're filled with him because of what he's done. And he's the excitement around this Christmas narrative about what happens around this time in December. But yet, at the same time, though we have this satisfaction, we have this great longing to be with him again because this world is broken and there's still things going on and yet we're satisfied, but yet we long to be with our Savior that is such a great uh, bride uh, to us, a bridegroom to us, that is so good to us that we talked about earlier and, how, and what he's done for us. It makes you yearn for what heaven would look like. If anybody here is a dreamer, you know that this life is not the end, and you long for something more, something that will satisfy and fulfill us all. It's yet satisfying, but at the same time, you long for this great expectation. The mainstream Christmas is about what I can receive, you know, the gifts and what I get or what's in it for me, at least for the most part with kids. But the Christian Christmas is what I can give. How can I bless the people around me, my neighbor, my brother, my siblings, my family? How can we share this story? The, the mainstream Christmas is about Santa performance. And I'm not going to sing the song, but the lyrics go something, something to the effect of, he's coming back every year, he's checking his list twice. If you're naughty or nice, pretty much, You'll, you'll get gifts. And if you're bad, you get coal. And this is what the doctrine of this world teaches us, that good people get good things, bad people just get bad things, and you got to act right if you want. It, that, that makes us performance-driven. And that's what ties us to certain religion where we feel like we got to keep performing. But the Christian Christmas is better because we don't have to perform. Jesus gives us grace, unmerited favor, undeserving this is good news for us, that you don't have to work your way into heaven. He's done it all for you, that he gives you a gift that you can't earn a work for. And I'm not telling you by all means, don't, you know, don't tell your kids Santa or anything like that. I'm not, I'm not here to parent. Do as you please, but Jesus is better. Don't you want to tell a better story? Something that would keep your kid lasting and longing. Something more satisfying. Jesus gives us grace. That's what you need. That's what we need, grace. He loves good and bad people, and that's what changes you, not how hard you strive. And Santa only comes apparently once a year. But Jesus' presence is with us always. Come on, always. So you don't want that. There's a better. There's a, it's better for us. In closing, Redeem Christmas by savoring your Savior, our Savior. It doesn't have to be boring anymore. Share the story with people. Share this great hope that you have. The amazing story of our Lord coming into this world. Be generous to another family. Invite others. 
whether it's to eat and enjoy dessert around together. Uh, share this great hope that you have to this world. Make light of the Christmas story to the nativity scenes, to anything Advent. Open some gifts and enjoy family. Christmas can be fun again. Sing songs as you relish the beauty of your Savior. Grace and peace, guys.